0: You graduates, I certainly don't mean to rain on your parade this morning, but the easy part of life is over. All you dads and moms, am I right about this? I mean, life begins now, and so the best word of encouragement I could give to you would be, if possible, stay home and live off of mom and dad as long as you can, all right? All right. <laughs> Because once once you're out on your own, it, it's real world out there then. And uh, you'll find it's been a little more challenging than it has been trying to pass an algebra test. All right, I want to tell you a Bible story this morning. Are you up and open to a good Bible story today? The reason I want to tell you this story is because a week ago, um, as Pastor Mike got to the end of his message, a statement that he made resonated with me. I was seated right over here. Kathy and I come to the early service, and I jotted it down. I made many notes last Sunday morning, but in particular, uh, I've kind of dwelt on that one statement that Pastor Mike made as he came to the conclusion of his message. And here's a statement he asked. He made, he asked a question. Will we pray for revival in Nassau County? Do any of you remember that? I don't know why some statements kind of stick in your heart and memory as opposed to others, but for some reason this week, I've been thinking a lot about that statement he made, and in fact, to be honest with you, last Sunday morning when he made this statement, my mind immediately went to this Bible story I want to share with you this morning. The story is found in 1 Kings chapter 18. If you want to go with me there to 1 Kings 18, I'm going to give you a minute to find it. If you don't know where 1 Kings is... Uh, It's just before 2 Kings, all right? So if you'll go to 2 Kings and turn left, you'll get to 1 Kings 18. And I want to join you there in just a couple of minutes. You are going to discover in this story, and I think it probably will be familiar to most of you, that uh, the main emerging human personality in this story is a gentleman by the name of Elijah. Now you know that name, don't you? Elijah in the Old Testament. You need to be careful with Elijah because there are two names that sound very similar. Elijah and Elisha. You know the difference? That Elijah was the older of the two, and uh, Elisha came along after him. Elisha was his young protege, and in fact, Elisha is the one that asked the Lord to give to him a double portion of the spirit of Elijah's spirit and Elijah's mantle and influence. But this morning, we're going to talk about Elijah But interestingly enough, though he appears throughout Scripture, we really know very little about that individual. We don't know much about his background, his family, his education, prior experience, and things like that. But what we do know about Elijah is quite impressive indeed. In fact, let me set the table to this story this morning by holding before you three brief snapshots of Elijah as we get to know this man who will emerge in just a moment. We know Elijah in Scripture, first of all, as a man of great prominence, and he really was a prominent man. Do any of you know what happened at the very end of Elijah's life? If you were to go to 2 Kings chapter 2, you would discover that one day the Bible says a chariot of fire accompanied by angels descended from heaven. And Elijah was suddenly and instantly caught up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but that'd be the way to go, wouldn't it, man? I mean, think about it. You're there one minute, and the next minute, a chariot of fire appears, and whoosh, you're gone, to use a word that we might be able to relate to today. Elijah was suddenly and instantly raptured up from Mother Earth, and he was instantly taken into the very presence of God. I like that about Elijah. Unless Jesus comes in our generation probably, I can make this statement rather safely, not a one of us are going to depart like that, right? Even though as charming as it may be, that happened only to Enoch before Elijah and then Elijah. But the Bible says Elijah was there and poof, suddenly he's gone. He's quite a prominent man. But listen, that's not the end of this man. In fact, 1,000 years, about a 1,000 years after his sudden rapture up into heaven, The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 17 that Jesus is there on the Mount of Transfiguration and he takes with him Peter, James, and John. And do you remember at reading in that moment when the inner glory of Jesus, all that he was, began to burst through his humanity? The Bible says that standing there on either side of Jesus were two prominent Old Testament characters. One was Moses and the other was Elijah. So, I mean, Elijah just pops up all over Scripture. I would think it would be enough to get your name once in the Bible. I mean, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? But for Elijah to keep emerging, I'd say he's a fairly prominent person, wouldn't you? Not only do we know him as a man of great prominence, we also know Elijah as a man of great power. Now, you don't need to read this chapter right now. But the chapter prior to 18, chapter 17 of 1 Kings, the Bible tells us that one day Elijah went to visit a lady known in Scripture as the widow of Zarephath. Do you remember what happened happened on that day in which he was visiting her? The Bible says that her son died. Now, boy, that'll ruin a good visit, won't it? I mean, there they are visiting, her son suddenly turns ill and... Son gives up the ghost and the son dies. And Elijah steps up and says, no big problem, not to worry. The Bible said he stretched himself out over this dead son three times, prayed, and the Bible says that life was instantly restored to that young man. Now, time out. Have any of you done that lately? I haven't. Haven't even been around anybody that could even lay claim. I know there are some claims out there who raise the dead. Let me tell you something, folks. If somebody came back from the dead, ABC, CBS, Oprah would be all over them. Trust me on that one, all right? Elijah was a man of great power. He had the ability to raise the dead. And again, if that were not enough, the Bible right in the middle of this story tells us that Elijah had the power to speak. And the heavens were sealed up, and it did not rain. And Elijah had the power to speak again, and suddenly it rained. And are you aware that Elijah spoke the word? And for three and a half years, uh, it did not rain. Not a drop, not a thunder shower, not a single ounce of rain fell for three and a half years. We often use the phrase, you know, we talk about the weather, but nobody can do anything about it. Well, listen, Elijah could do something about it. And when he uttered the word, it did not rain. And when he uttered the word again, it finally began to rain. So we see Elijah emerging in Scripture as a man of great prominence, a man of great power. But primarily we see him as a man who was a great prophet of God. Now that's the way he emerges in this story. Now when I use the word prophet, what comes to your mind? I'll bet for the most of us, the idea of a prophet is someone who has ability to look out into the future and tell you what's going to happen tomorrow and next week and next year and so forth. And there certainly was that element in a prophet's role. There were times that God would speak to his man and say that God, who knows the future, who's already in the future, in which there is no time with God, God is able to say, Now, next Friday afternoon, this is going to happen. Go out there and tell people that's going to happen. But the primary role of a prophet was not so much to foretell the Word of God as it was, uh, foretell, but as much as it was to speak forth the Word of God, to just simply show up on the scene, arrive with a burden, a message upon their heart, and then share that message with the people of God. That is the way Elijah emerges here in First Kings chapter 18. So with that little bit of word of background and Hopefully by now you've been able to find 1 Kings chapter 18. You noticed I gave you ample time to find it, all right? So now with your Bible open, just keep it on your lap because all I'm going to do is walk you through this very, very simple Bible story this morning. Let's begin reading in verse 17. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah. Now time out just a moment because you need to know a little bit about Ahab. Do you know who he was? At this time, Ahab was king of Israel, but he was a king who had gone bad. In fact, he had gone terribly bad. Not only had he closed his eyes to the truth of Jehovah God, but Ahab had begun to aggressively lead the people away from the sole worship of Jehovah God. And now the people of God are flirting with the other gods of their pagan society. And so God taps Elijah on the heart and God says, You're going to go and we are going to show them really who is a boss and who is running this show. So that's Ahab. And so Ahab says to Elijah when he saw him that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Now, is that not ironic? Who is the one who was really bringing trouble to Israel? It wasn't the man of God. It was this uh, king who had gone astray. And Ahab, I'm sorry, Elijah answered in verse 18... I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 450 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah said to all the people, uh, Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? I'll let you stop there and look up. I'm reading out of the New King James translation. I'm not exactly certain which Bible you're using and not certain how that phrase reads in verse 21. How long will you falter between two opinions? The picture behind this statement is that Israel had a divided heart. One half of their heart was sold uh, toward God. I mean, they knew God. They wanted God. But the other half of their heart was now pursuing these other interests, these other gods of their day and time. And they were living life with one foot in the world and one foot, as it were, in the kingdom of God. They had a divided heart. This morning I got up early and I went into my library and pulled down again John Bunyan's book, that wonderful book, Pilgrim's Progress. Have any of you read that book? You may know that the story of, in that book is it's an allegorical story. But there's a gentleman named Christian who is on his way to the holy city. And he has many different experiences which are really your experiences and mine. One of the characters that uh, Christian encounters along the way to the Holy City is a very interesting character by name. Bunyan calls him Mr. Facing Both Ways. Is that not graphic? Mr. Facing Both Ways. Now, I know that we have no Mr. or Mrs. Facing Both Ways in the congregation this morning, do we? You never, ever, ever have a problem with that, do you? Folks, I'm 61 years old and I never cease to amaze myself. I never cease to be amazed at how in one moment I can be so holy and in the next moment I can be so human. I never cease to amaze myself at how I can be a man who lives as one who is forgiven. But even before I can draw the next breath, I live as one who is so fallen. How can that be? Do any of you struggle with that? Do any of you struggle with that clash of identities that you have maybe? Between the person you project yourself to be and the person that you perceive yourself to be? The person you want everybody else to think that you are. But in reality, you know that you're not all that you think you are and all that you want others to believe that you are. Anybody live in that tension? Does anybody other than me live with that daily struggle? It's what the apostle said. The things I want to do, I don't. The very things I don't want to do, I end up doing. You would think as we grow older, we'd get a handle on it. But it seems like I struggle with that more now than I ever have. I bring that up because what Elijah had to say was to me. This word is to every Mr. or Mrs. facing both ways in the congregation this morning. This is not a text that's lost in time 3,000 years ago. It it is as relevant as your journey and my journey, and it relates as much to Celebration Baptist Church as as it did to the nation of Israel 3,000 years ago, because every one of us are faltering between one of two decisions. Am I going to follow God with all of my heart, or am I just going to play footsies with sin under the table hoping no one else will discover what is going on truly in my life so that's where the nation of Israel was pick up again in verse 21 and Elijah came to all the people and said how long will you falter between two opinions now here's the deal if the Lord is God follow him but if Baal is God follow him but the people answered him Not a word at all. Isn't that amazing? So I want you to notice that they're gathered on the side of Mount Carmel, the very place, by the way, of Baal worship. Elijah said, we're going to take this into your camp. They're in the very place of Baal worship on the side of that mountain are gathered The 450 prophets of Baal, there they are in one corner and over in the other corner is Elijah. Do any of you guys ever, like on a, I don't know what night, it comes on a Monday night or Thursday night or whatever, when there's really nothing else to watch on TV and you're channel surfing, do any of you ever stop at wrestling? Do any of you ladies ever stop at wrestling, by the way? I probably shouldn't just assume that men do, but... You know, the other night my wife came in and caught me watching wrestling the other night. Of all things. The reason I bring that up is here's what I think about. I mean, I think about... The baddest dudes on the earth, who the undertaker, and I don't know who the others are. For some reason, that's the one, the one was wrestling that night, and I was watching him. But you get the undertaker and 449 of his baddest friends, and you put them in one corner. There they are, the prophets of Baal over in one corner. And I mean, they're hulking up, and I mean, veins are, you, you can just see that in your mind, can't you? As they're getting ready for this great challenge. And over in the other corner stands Barney Fife all alone. My goodness, no contest at all, is it? Other than the contest is not at all resting on human strength. It is resting on who is going to be the true God. And so here's what Elijah does. Elijah says, let's take a sacrifice and let's let the sacrifice determine which true God is going to respond to this. So look at verse 23, the story moves on. Therefore, let us let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. Put, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull. Lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods. And I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. And so, here's the way we're going to settle this thing. We're going to bring it to conclusion once and for all. We're going to prepare our own sacrifices, and the God that comes down and responds by fire, he is going to be the true God, okay? Winner take all, lights out, cage match, is that what they call it? I mean, only one of us is going to come out of here surviving this. So let's just settle this thing once and for all today. Now, <clears throat> can you just not see in your mind's eye the activity that began Look with me at verse 26. We get an idea. And and the burden, uh, the first burden falls upon the prophets of Baal. Verse 26. So they took the bull which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. Now, did you pick up on that from morning until uh, midday? Six hours. Okay, so. I don't know what was happening. I wasn't there. We aren't given the details. So just let your vivid imagination go crazy for just a moment. All right. Can you see the altar? Can you see all those prophets of Baal gathered around it? And whatever they are doing, they're doing with all of their heart. I mean, they're not lacking on intent and passion and all of that. I mean, they're busy with everything that they are doing and so forth. And with every possible activity that you can possibly imagine. I want you to look at verse 27. There is a bit of sarcasm in verse 27. Are any of you sarcastic? <clears throat> my wife often accuses me of sarcasm and my response is, you think? As good as any, isn't it? Well if you need a good verse to support sarcasm, verse 27 might be that verse. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, "Hey, you're not shouting loud enough. Cry a little bit louder, uh for he is for he is God. Either he is meditating or he's busy or maybe he's on a journey or he might be asleep and you need to wake him up and I mean isn't that a bit of sarcasm? So, gentlemen, ladies, if that's your bag, use it with great glory and authority, all right? Because there's a man of God who is doing that very thing. But I want you to look. It's a really a very, very sad story on their part, in a way. Verse 28, so they cried aloud. And listen, if their activity were not enough, then let's be a little more sincere. Verse 28, they cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances... Until the blood gushed out on uh, the ground or gushed out on them. Not a spark. Not a flicker of fire. It was absolutely nothing. I don't know where you are in your thinking through this story. But as I come to this place in the story, I have to stop for just a moment. Because I want to ask the question that Elijah is asking. Where is the fire? Have any of you been at this a while? Celebration Baptist is what, about 20 years old or so, something like that. I was pastoring when Celebration was birthed. The pastor that was a part of the birth of this church... He and I spent a lot of time together and praying about the birth of Celebration Baptist Church. So I've been around throughout your history. How many of you have been a part of a church other than Celebration? A lot of activity out there, isn't there? Have you read a church bulletin lately? I get newsletters from churches across the country and I I look at all the activities going on in their bulletins. To be honest with you, just reading the bulletin makes me want to take a nap. I'm weary just reading the bulletin. Because if you aren't careful, the church will have you out every night of the week. They'll get you so busy jumping up and down off the altar and cutting yourself. But the question I want to ask you today, honestly, where's the fire? In spite of all of our busyness, where's the fire? Have you seen the fire? Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, we come and we have things neatly in order and we do the right songs and messages are right on target and everything else. But the question I keep asking myself is where in the world is the one thing we need the most in the church in America today? Where in heaven's name is the fire. Our story moves on. After they've done what they have done for half a day, Elijah steps to the forefront and he says, Boys, get out of the way. Got something I want to show you. So this story unfolds more as the Bible says in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Just make mental note of that. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And Then I want you to notice when we come to verse 33 that Elijah does something that catches everyone totally off guard. And if we didn't know the story it would catch us off guard as well. Verse 33, and he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood and said, fill four water pots with water, pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. Now, you got that picture in your mind? I think most of us are have enough experience or enough education to know that fire and water cannot coexist, right? Right. I mean one or the other is gonna win and typically it's water that puts out fire. Is that right? And so the Bible tells us that Elijah said once he got the sacrifice prepared, that's not enough. Bring four pitchers of pots of water, large pots of water, pour it on the altar, do it again, do it again. So literally this sacrifice is setting in a pond of water there inside of that trench. And then the Bible says that Elijah does something there's no jumping around there's no cutting himself look at verse 36 the bible says in verse 36 and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that elijah the prophet came near and he said lord god of abraham isaac and israel let it be known this day that you are god in israel and i am your servant and that i have done all these things at your word hear me O lord hear me so that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. And look at this. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. The Bible says... Then the fire of the Lord fell. No matches, no starter fluid, no magic, no activity, no pretending. Elijah prayed and the Bible says the fire of the Lord fell upon the altar. Now, are you following me in this story enough to put these segments together? It was an altar, a sacrifice, prayer. And then the fire fell. Can I say that again? There was an altar, a sacrifice, prayer, and then the fire fell. Now time out just a minute. We've talked all through this message about the fire of God. When the Bible talks about the fire of God, what in the world... Is the Bible referencing? What uh, does the Bible have in mind? I mean, is it like the fires that we see on the news now out west that are burning uncontrollably thousands upon thousands of acres or even the fires we have experienced in Florida from time to time? Is it a campfire? Is it a cooking fire? Is that what we're talking about? Are we talking about a fire like you will grill on this afternoon or tomorrow? Is that what we're talking about? Of course not. Did, did you know in the Bible that when it talks about the fire of God, the Bible is talking about something very specific. It is talking about the concentrated presence of God among His people. And when the Bible says the fire fell, translation, God stepped down for a moment out of heaven and God dwelt upon that altar with that sacrifice and the very power of God licked up all of that water because God was present again with his people. The fire of God failed. Pastor, how do you know that? Because in the Bible, God moves th- through his creation in the form of fire. Let me show it to you. Do you remember the story of Moses there on the back side of the wilderness? The Bible tells us that one day something caught the eye of Moses and he turned. And there was a bush that was burning, but the bush was not being. Why? Because it wasn't a campfire. It wasn't a cooking fire. It was the very presence of God that was concentrated for a moment in that bush. In fact, Moses came up, took his sandals off because he recognized immediately that I am standing in the presence of someone who is extremely holy. And the Bible says the voice of the Lord came out of that fire. Why? Because that's the way God moves through his creation. You remember the children of Israel as they're making their way through the wilderness wanderings. The Bible says that it was a cloud by day and by night God led them with a pillar of fire wasn't a campfire that stayed out ahead of them. Do you know what it was? It was the very presence of God Himself who shows up in creation in the form of fire. And listen, that's not lost in the Old Testament. When you turn the page into the New Testament, the Bible says in Acts chapter 1 at the ascension of the Lord Jesus that Jesus said to His disciples, I'm going to leave, but I'm not going to leave you without a comforter. You return to the city of Jerusalem and you tarry there in Jerusalem. And those disciples went to an upper room and 50 days after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ the Bible said that they are gathered in that room and they are praying and the Bible says that cloven tongues of came up on them. Question, why didn't it send your hair? Why don't we see them doing this, trying to put the fire out? Because it was not a campfire. It was not a cooking fire. It was a fire of the presence of God. Do you know what happened in that upper room? The Lord God Almighty stepped out of heaven for a moment. And the Lord God Almighty visited His people. And when God visits His people, it is in the form of fire. So I ask you, Where's the fire? Where is it today? I don't know that I've earned the right to say this. I probably haven't. But for more than 40 years, I have done what I'm doing this morning. And I stand before you today with a fundamental conviction. The issue in the church today is not whether the pastor dresses up or dresses down. The issue in the church today is not this kind of music versus some other kind of music. The number one issue that we face in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today is we're trying to do this without the fire of God. Where's the fire? Where's the fire? You say, oh, Pastor, you know, you just like all the others, you come up and you talk about a need for revival and so forth and so on. By the way, for those of you like me and old Mossy back in life, I probably know what you're thinking this morning. You're probably thinking, you're right, Brother Jackie. I've I've told Pastor Mike, if we'd just go back to that spring and fall revival every year, man, that's exactly what we need to do. We need to go back and have those revivals every year. Do you understand, I'm not talking about trying to get you out to church every night, during a week, twice a year. That's not what I'm talking about. Because there are plenty of churches around that still have those kinds of times. And listen, they still end up with churches being divided, separated, church splits. People can't get along with one another. Sin's still running rampant. There may be a little spark for a service or two. And we may get excited about the number of people being added to the church. But I want to ask you the question. I've asked you all through the message. where in heaven's name is a fire. Where is it? Boy, we love to copy things. You let somebody in Southern California or Chicago or wherever get something that draws a lot of people, and all of a sudden we become that. We do. That's what we need. We need what they have. We need the structure that they have in place. I say to you again the issue is not the structure of a local church. The issue is you let the fire fall upon that church. And listen, it doesn't matter whether you sing Do Lord Every Sunday or the most contemporary song on this earth. People are going to show up because everybody loves a fire. Where's the fire? And I submit to you today. That not only is that the greatest need in the church, but it's the greatest need in our nation today. Because I hear people from time to time talk about, oh my goodness, if, if we just had somebody else in the White House. We could back the election up a year or two and just get the right person in the White House. Ladies and gentlemen, the issue in our nation is not the White House. The issue is the church house. It's the de-evolution, the devolution of our society. Our culture is going down, not up. How else do you explain Jerry Springer and the Jersey Shore? It's a devolution of our culture. Oh, I think you're just being an alarmist. Oh, really? Really? Go out to the cemetery this afternoon if your grandparents are deceased and have a visit with them and get your grandmother and grandfather to tell you what it was like 50, 60 years ago in America. Let me tell you what, they would turn over in their grave if they knew we were aborting one and a half million innocent babies every year and all of this is happening in Christian America. Where is the fire? We're a generation that's going to redefine marriage. Some of you that are 20 and younger or 30 and younger, you look at me and say, what's wrong with that? Shouldn't the opinion of our culture matter? Are you ready for this? No. Only what God has said matters. I don't mean to offend you and turn you off. We don't have to be angry about it. But the problem is when we begin to define, redefine marriage Where do we stop? And once you open the door to redefining marriage, get ready, get ready. You say, oh, it'll never happen. Ask your grandparents if they ever thought this day would happen. I don't mean to be an alarmist, but I'm grateful. I won't be around 50 years from now to see where our culture has gone. We need the fire of God to fall on us. Now, I want to close this study this morning before I do that. Are you aware that America has experienced the fire of God? Did you know that? In the middle of the 18th century... And again, early in the 19th century, they're known as the Great Awakenings in America. Did you know that? Uh, The second of these was started by a businessman in New York City who got a burden to pray for revival in his church, and he began to spend the noonday lunch hour in prayer. And another gentleman joined him, and another, and another, and another. And before you knew, it was like wildfire, wildfire people were praying for revival, and God sent revival to America. Did you know in the little island nation of Wales, in 1903 and 1904, God sent revival? Spearheaded by a gentleman named Evan Roberts, God brought revival to that little nation. And not only to Wales, but it spread through Europe. It eventually touched Asia and Africa. And I mean, it just moved all across that land like a wildfire in that day and time. Can I read you a couple of reports from the London Daily Post about um, the revival that was occurring? Just bear with me a moment. There have been no arrests for drunkenness in, this, in the city since the revival has started. Outstanding debts were being paid by thousands of young converts. Restitution was the order of the day. The gambling and alcohol business lost their trade and the theaters closed down From lack of business. Football. It was soccer over there. Football during this time was forgotten by both players and fans. Though nothing was mentioned from the pulpits about the evils of football. Could you imagine coming to church? I mean just imagine coming to church one Sunday. And you didn't hear a single word about the Gators or the Seminoles or the Dogs. Or whatever your team may be. Could you imagine that? Well, I know you just shut the door to this sermon because you're thinking, Preacher, if we're going to give up the Gators, there ain't no way on earth we're going to pray for revival, right? Well, I'm just telling you that's what happened. I'm not making the news. I'm just reading the news, all right? In this country, which had a general reputation of being a football mad, the train for taking the crowds to the international matches was found to be almost empty. The people had found a new life and new interest. Can I read one other brief article about the revival then? Talking about the coal pits, and Wales is a, a coal mining nation, or it was in that time. It takes us down in the coal pits, and it says, Cursing and profanity were so diminished that several slowdowns were reported in the coal mines. For so many men gave up using foul language that the pit ponies dragging the coal trucks in the mine tunnels did not understand what was being said to them and stood still, confused. It even touched the donkeys of that day and time, didn't it? Huh? I mean, they had to retrain the animals because God cleaned up so many lives and so forth and so on. I've come this morning to say that I believe with all of my heart the greatest, 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 greatest need that we face. It's not a new way of doing things. The greatest need we have is for God to visit His church. Now, I want to close with two statements. The first. If we do not pursue the fire, the fundamental reason, I think, is because we don't know that we need it. You see, I've preached this Sought this, prayed for this all of my life. And to be honest with you, I've never seen the fire of God fall. The only reason I know we need it is because of what I read in Scripture. It's like the old frog in the pot of water. It warms up so slowly that he doesn't realize it. We've been conditioned by our culture to think that our culture is right and they have the answers. I just don't think that we know we need it today. I think that if we honestly believe that this is what we need more than anything else, I think it would drive us to do something about it. Second thing, I don't think we're willing to pay the price to get it. Do you remember the story, and I made a big deal of it, that when Elijah repaired the altar and put the sacrifice on it, he shocked everyone by saying, bring four pots of water, four more, four more. Does anyone remember what was happening during that time? I'd said to you that the heavens were shut up, sealed away. It did not rain for three and a half years. In fact, when you come to the end of this story in about verse 40 or so, the Bible tells us that it started raining again, but during this time, time was the most severe drought they had ever seen in their lifetime. When you are in a drought, the most precious commodity you have is water. And yet Elijah said. If you want to see the fire. It's going to cost you that which is most precious to you. Are you willing to bring you water? Are you willing to put it on the altar? Let's take a step back and ask God to do what only God can do. Are you willing to do that? The Bible says they brought the water. And the fire of God fell. I don't know what revival is going to cost you. But I do know that there's no such thing as a costless revival. If we want it, it's going to cost us. We're going to have to pay the price, whatever that is, to get God to revisit His people. Now that's what I came to say to you this morning. So I'm done. I hope you're not done with this word. I hope this word resonates in your soul this week. And my prayer is that more than anything else, you'll recognize the need we have for genuine revival. There's a little verse in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. You're going to know this verse. You've heard it quoted many times, probably when someone is trying to lead someone else to faith. And here's what the little verse says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Do you know that little verse? You know the only problem with it? It has absolutely nothing to do with personal salvation. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is not knocking on the door of a sinner's heart. He's knocking on the door of the church at Laodicea. A church which was neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. And Jesus said, I would, that you were one or the other, but you're not. I'm on the outside, and I'm asking you to let me in. Will you let me visit your church? Our Father, I ask you today to take what has been said this morning, and in your grace and in your mercy, would you call us, give us a hunger to see you move, And be satisfied with nothing less than the fire of God falling upon your people again. I'm often reminded at moments like this, it's not the mere ramblings of a man that we need to hear. We need to hear the voice of God. We need to respond to that. So if you have spoken and if you are speaking, may your people hear the word of the Lord. Be obedient to that which they have heard. May the good things of your grace be theirs as I pray this in Jesus' name. Pastor Dan.